the National Archives podcast series. Join up and see the world. British military recruitment after national service. Presented by Peter Johnston. Yes, so the subject of today's talk is join up and see the world. British military recruitment is national service. Uh, and this talk will analyse the motivations of why men joined the armed forces in the period prior to the Falklands War and how experience of war in the South Atlantic either confirmed or challenged their assumptions of what professional military service would entail. The Falklands War was won after battalion-sized battles and conventional warfare on land, but how much of this was actually envisioned by the ordinary volunteer during the British Armed Forces prior to 1982, and how much exactly of it had they been led to believe by the recruitment literature provided by the Ministry of Defence. Unlike the First and Second World Wars, the Falklands War was not marked by a rush to the colours by idealistic use and volunteers, nor was there any conscription. The men who fought in the South Atlantic were paid and highly trained professionals. Indeed, they were already members of the armed forces when the crisis began. These men had not joined up under the pretense of ideology or a particularly strong desire to defend queen and country. The vast majority of soldiers serving in the British Army had joined during a time of peace, and as McManus has written, and I quote, joining the armed forces in peacetime with no immediate prospect of having to go to war is presented by recruiters as a career like any other. Men joined the different branches of the British Armed Forces for a variety of reasons. Most recruits wanted to travel or improve themselves by gaining useful qualifications. That all of these could be attained within a salary position, along with a sense of adventure that came with being in the military, and with a pension at the end of service, of course, made the Armed Forces look like a very promising career to young men leaving school, either with or without qualifications. So how then did the Ministry of Defence attract volunteers to the various branches of its Armed Forces? The first topic I'll look at is sport. Uh, this, for example, the images you're going to see are all taken from recruitment literature produced by the Ministry of Defence or the Ministry of Information on behalf of the Ministry of Defence between 1963 uh, and slightly earlier in the 1950s and also leading up to 1980s. Sport in particular was used by all three branches of the armed forces as a major incentive for enlisting. It featured heavily and consistently in recruitment pamphlets distributed by the various regiments of the Army and the Royal Marines in the 1960s and 70s, with specific sections detailing the importance of competitive sports and promoting their use. Indeed, a 1972 recruitment pamphlet for the Army stated that you'd have to be a very rich civilian indeed to take part in all of the sports available to the average infantryman. One recruitment pamphlet for the Guards even featured a picture of Jackie Charlton informing prospective recruits about how his experience with the Blues and Royals had been invaluable in helping him win the Football World Cup in 1966. The theme of sport was also married to that of foreign travel, and the idea of doing exotic sports not available in England was also promoted and appealed to the prospective recruit. And as you can see here, sport married to an exotic location, tropical island, water skiing round uh, destroyer. Obviously, this is what the Royal Navy does, uh, or at least this is the impression they attempted to create. Such an opportunity for, to, to do things like this was uh, actively seized upon by the Royal, uh, Royal Marines and other servicemen in particular. For example, recruits were extremely receptive to this, so my analysis of, of, of veterans and having spoken to them means that they all picked up on these themes quite heavily. Sport in particular is a major theme. Quote, for example, an example of, of one Royal Marine who said, the only thing I was really good at at school was sport. So for me to get a job, if you like, if you call it that, where it involved lots of sport, well, the services or the forces was a good option. The idea of sport and a physical challenge was also used by the more elite units of the British military, the Parachute Regiment and the Royal Marines, in their recruitment. Highly selective, they recruited men who wanted the physical challenge of a difficult training regime and the status of elite troops that came with it. This in particular attracted men who had been good at sport at school. 
For Andy Stone, for example, it was the additional length and difficulty of the training required to become a paratrooper, the infamous P Company selection process, which gave the parachute regiment its elite status that made him want to join. As he said, and I quote, you don't just walk into the careers office and join the parachute regiment, you have to go through a selection process, and that's what appealed to me. As you can see, therefore, the, the, the culture of these units is, is married to their central theme. So they use sport to promote themselves, and they use the work as an extension of that sport. And they make it, therefore, more attractive through that way. Similarly, the renowned difficulty of the Royal Marines training course at Limpston served to inspire many recruits to join. For example, being told it was too tough for them by friends, family and civilian work colleagues provided a major incentive for some. Commando training was a fundamental aspect of the unit's culture, and Limpston was very much a foundation stone in building that. As a recruitment pamphlet of 1973 stated, the instant marine does not exist. He is built in body, mind and character. As a commando, he has to be strong. He has to think for himself, work alone or with a companion, or maybe in charge of others with no one around to hold his hand. Training provides this kind of man, a man of action and skill who can be relied upon in all situations to be a professional at his job. It's a job for men who like challenge, change, and the promise of adventure. Having achieved this position was obviously a source of enormous pride. And again, the pride that comes from playing competitive sport and winning is translated directly into the service's culture. Marshall, Danny Marshall, a Marine, for example, still ranks becoming a Royal Marine as the greatest and proudest achievement of his life. Limston by sort of extension of all the sporting paraphernalia and the, challenge, the physical challenges it brought on, he's used, you know, used sport to build esprit de corps amongst military units. This was fundamentally important. Uh, and it leaves a lasting impression on all those who experience it. Uh, Dave Barrett, for example, who we served in the Royal Marines, said, and I quote, how do I look back on Limpston? I think it's an amazing place and it does a wonderful job, but it still scares me. So you can see that the idea of sport was used to entice men in and then they were then physically challenged and pushed to their limits in order to make them into servicemen. This is the, uh, one of these pamphlets from the Royal Marines. You can see that having gone from the sport, it then brings up the, the, the concept of difficulty uh, and achieving excellence through physical exertion, which is much the concept of sport. The next incentive uh, and next primary theme that was offered in the recruitment literature that I shall discuss is obviously foreign travel, which you can see here. Uh, and there can be no doubt the incentive of foreign travel was a major attraction for prospective recruits to join the British Armed Forces. This was particularly noticeable before the sort of withdrawal and the concept of withdrawal east of Suez. Uh, the Royal Navy in particular maintained stations in the Far East, uh, the Mediterranean, uh, and the idea of being able to visit these places was extremely attractive. The Navy in particular, as I've just mentioned, benefited highly from this, uh, and it is really in the Navy that the, fo the foreign travel element is promoted. Uh, one sailor believed that the travel potential offered by the Navy was among the deciding factors in, con in convincing him and a friend to join up. Another said that, unsure about his future, he found the idea of foreign travel to be extremely exciting, and when married with his high interest in sport, the Navy was a logical choice for him. He had, of course, benefited from the fact that in 1977 he'd moved to Hong Kong with his stepfather, who was also in the Navy, and so he'd grown up in a very exotic environment, quite different to 1970s Britain, whereby he was seeing the, the true benefits and, and, and pluses, plus aspects of naval life. Having also talked to other servicemen about the various places they'd been, uh, where the places they were going to go, that very much settled the decision for him. Uh, and, he said that this is, and he said after finishing that he lived the dream as soon as he enlisted, visiting Portugal, Mallorca and Gibraltar. Of course, I mean, it really cannot be underestimated the, the impact of foreign travel. Phil Russo, another sailor, recalled that the idea of travel offered by the Navy 
uh, was the major appeal for him. And he recalls fondly the appeal of the recruitment pamphlet he saw, which featured a man in a smart uniform on a tropical beach with a drink in one hand and an exotic local girl on the other. Uh, uh, sadly, I've not been able to find that image. Uh, but, um, but by all accounts, this is very much what he decided as being the deciding factor for him to join. This, for example, is a classic case of the Royal Navy using travel to recruit. This is from the Royal Navy official calendar of 1973. Uh, you can see there in the top left-hand corner visiting Venice, the bottom left-hand corner is in the Far East, and the right-hand side the Mediterranean with quite a jovial, pleasant scene going on, all enjoying each other's companies, uh, playing the guitar, everything being quite fun. This is what the Navy was presented as being about, the opportunity to see the world that quite simply wasn't available through any other means. Uh, the presence of, of, of wrens as well almost certainly helped offset the, the, the perils of otherwise being on a ship for months at a time with other men. So this was a, a major thing. Now learning a trade is the other option that we're going to look at now. Uh, as technology advanced in the later 20th century, so too did the armed forces become more technical in outlook and approach, as represented here by the, the adoption of things like missile systems, radar, as standard issue aboard the ships, and the, the evolution and change in, in naval warfare away from battleships to more technologically advanced vessels. And this embodied in particular in the Royal Navy uh, and the aviation aspects, both by the Fleet Air Arm and the RAF. As the Royal Navy became an increasingly technological force in the post-war era, there was a concerted drive from recruiters for engineers to oversee the use of and maintain this equipment in a way unmatched by the less technology demanding Army and Royal Marines. The benefits of having such a skill and qualification in engineering in the civilian world for when the sailor completed his period of service were also stressed and used as an incentive as completing the training, and a quote from a pamphlet from 1958, can be considered as good as serving a full trade apprenticeship. As you can see, therefore, this, the Navy was thinking long term in its recruitment. Uh, this was a strategy devised both to bring people in, show them what they could achieve in the Navy, but also what they could get out of service. So they're looking here to fulfill the personal obligations and personal desires of the, of the recruits, which is a quite an attractive policy. And again, the idea of basically being paid to take on an apprenticeship and gain a high-level qualification is, again, extremely attractive when you're looking at otherwise not necessarily working or having to take some kind of other job. As the years progressed, this sentiment was only reinforced in the recruitment literature as, and I quote again, clearly a young man who has desired to acquire a skill or a trade, who wants to excel in something, is excellent material for a service that, in its growing technological complexity, is making increasing demands on brains rather than brawn. Artificers in particular, who were engineers, were highly sought after in this recruitment literature. And one pamphlet stated in 1958 that, in return for all their skill and knowledge, artificers receive higher pay than other naval ratings and quicker advancement. To boys of the necessary quality, the artificer apprentice entry into the Royal Navy offers a career of outstanding opportunity with the age-old attractions of naval life, such as travel, plenty of sport, and occasional excitement, providing a welcome bonus. As you can see, what they're doing here is now they're putting levels of its distinguishing aspects between the servicemen and saying, well, if you want to join the Navy, that's fine, but here's where you can really excel, and here's where you can get paid more, and here's where you can basically do more. Uh, and that is how the Navy used to was ultimately attracting and embettering itself and in taking a higher quality of, of recruits. Um, the academic qualifications, for example, to get into an artificer role in the Navy were slightly lower than they were to get into the civilian world. All the training was done on the job, it was paid, and again, 
as I just quoted from the 19, from a 1958 pamphlet there, they are emphasizing the other aspects that comes with service. You know, you may well have an equivalent artificer apprentice scheme in the civilian world, but it won't take you to the Far East. Uh, and you won't get paid to do it as well as you are in the Navy, and you won't get to enjoy all those opportunities, and you also won't be able to develop a long-term pension like you can in the Navy. That same pamphlet was actually reprinted and reissued five years later. Again, so the end of national service comes there in 1963, and the last, rec uh, last uh, conscripts are demobilized. Then you can see this, this real push to pick up the slack after conscription has ended. Uh, and the, same, the text is actually ex exactly the same, again, showing how persistent the Navy are in their attitudes and how they are pushing this line. The only difference, however, is that they draw greater attention to Britain's growing fleet of nuclear submarines, which are armed with Polaris missiles. The growing influence of technology found its way into the recruitment literature of other branches as well, including that of the Seaman branch. In 1964, one pamphlet pointed out that, unlike Jack Tyre of earlier years, the Seaman today has a specialist job, typical of the age in which we live. He has, in fact, a dual role in the fleet. He is both a man of technical skill and a man of the sea. His is an increasing technical job, calling for intelligence and a higher degree of technical skill and is a tough job, a man's job. Similarly, the following year, the Navy identified in an information booklet that to cope with the increasing page of technological change it was undertaking, it must seek men with the salt of the sea in their veins who can cope with the quickening pace of technological developments. They must feel at home in an instrument-packed operations room as their forebears did on the gun deck of an old man of war. Despite this growing technological trend, the Navy was keen to point out that the old incentives for joining up still remained as re relevant as ever, claiming that, and I quote, some elements of naval life remain timeless. The travel and adventure associated with life at sea, the companionship of a happy ship's company. Such a technological facet of the mere basics of naval life was to have a huge impact on the concepts of warfare and the concepts of what service with the Navy actually entailed. It can be seen quite clearly that by promoting technical services as being the function of the, of the Navy, then this is what men expected to do. They expected to be engineers, not necessarily warriors. The Falklands was to severely disabuse some men of that. Nowhere is the growing trend of, of technological advancement, though, throughout the 60s and 70s, better embodied than the submarine fleet. In contrast to the surface fleet, the submarine division of the Royal Navy was on the front line against the Cold War against the Soviet Union. With the introduction of nuclear submarines, it was also very different in tactical role and operations from the surface fleet, which gave the submarine fleet an almost glamorous appeal, as well as appearing to herald the future of technological development and defensive armament. Colin Ray, who, who joined the Navy as a writer or clerk in Navy parlance in 1965, transferred to submarines in 1967 and spent a th further 34 years in the service. While he is unsure exactly why he joined submarines, Ray recalls thinking that it was the new thing, really. It seemed to be the way the Navy was going. It was the future of the Navy and the in thing. Likewise, Jonathan Powers had always wanted to join submarines, initially as a doctor, but then he decided that he wanted to command ships. I did join the Navy expressly to join nuclear submarines, he said. I think if you joined the army in 1943, you'd have wanted to join the tank corps because it was the latest and greatest thing. I felt exactly like that about submarines, and I certainly never regret it. Such attitudes were very much reflected in the recruitment literature produced by the Ministry of Defence. For example, in the 1956 pamphlet, The Royal Navy's a Career, an admiralty booklet about life and opportunities of ratings in the Royal Navy, a slightly long-winded title, the main images were an idealised artwork of a sailor in front of a British ensign on the front cover and the cruiser HMS Belfast on the rear. The sailor is wearing a hat marked HMS Eagle, which was an aircraft carrier in service at the time. However, in the 1962 version, again, which is not too long, only 12 years, the cover image is not of a battleship or aircraft carrier, 
but instead the focus is very much on submarines, reflecting the changing nature of British naval defensive policy as HMS Dreadnought, Britain's first nuclear power submarine, was due to be launched in 1962. You can see the, the complete change. So if we just look, explore the contrast here, we have HMS Eagle, which is an aircraft carrier, HMS Belfast, which is actually still moored in, in London. And these were what, this is what the Navy represented in the 1950s. By 1962, these were the images the Navy was trying to present itself as being. And this is the aspect they were pushing. So, for example, it's, it's, it's quite noticeable that you have the submarine in the foreground, the aircraft carrier in the background, because obviously British naval aviation was being wound down progressively from this point onwards. Uh, and then you also have a much smaller ship. And here, in many ways, you also see the Navy reflecting political ideology. That it was that after 1950, the Navy was being wound down and refocused in exclusively on the Soviet Union, which for a force in the North Atlantic. This meant smaller ships, submarines, minesweepers, destroyers, that sort of thing. And that is very much what this pamphlet, in, it's sort of a, in a microcosm, represents. Uh, and obviously, you have the naval aviation aspect just over the top. This obviously presented itself as being you know, the, the latest and greatest thing and being the future direction of the Navy. Uh, and in my experience, in my research, I found that so sailors were extremely receptive to this. For example, P uh, one sailor I met, Peter Harris, he grew up in rural Devon. Uh, and when he joined the Navy and he was presented with the idea of what the, uh, the question of what he wanted to do, he decided what he most wanted to do was move from, and I quote, from turnips to turbines. And he actively desired to join submarines. Uh, and he served on Polaris boats for 30 years. Technology was obviously also essential when it came to military aviation, again, as represented at the top of this picture. Potential recruits could participate in mili military aviation across the armed forces, noticeably though, not just in the RAF, but in the fleet air arm. However, in order to attract men to military aviation, similar tactics were used, and the same key areas were targeted for the aviation branch as for the regular form of that service, such as sport and travel, that could be enjoyed as part of their work. In the 1976 recruitment pamphlet, for example, the Army Air Corps wrote that, Life is not all work and duties. There is another side to it as well. Nowhere are the opportunities for sport and games better than they are in today's army." End quote. However, the Fleet Air Arm, RAF and Army Air Corps also had the added advantage of being able to offer flight, which in itself is a major, a major, major aspect and differential between anything else. The idea of being able to fly was and still remains incredibly exciting. Uh, and there, there's never been any shortage of applicants and people willing to become pilots, helicopter pilots, fighter pilots, etc. Uh, quite simply, the number of places available to open to them and the quality of them is what holds them back. There was also acknowledgement within these services of flight that the aviator and the world that they occupied was more exciting than the normal servicemen. As you can see, the fleet air arm in particular made use of this. Uh, when Britain still had aircraft carriers capable of launching a fixed-wing contingent, the images like this were used to say, you know, you can join the Navy but you can also fly. And you can, you can travel to all these exotic places, but you can do so and see them from the cockpit of a fast jet, which is far better than seeing them from an engine room of a ship. Uh, and the Navy were particular, and the Fly Navy, for example, was a, was a well-known series of pamphlets, all of which are stored here, that you can see and you can pick up on these themes. The Army Air Corps, for example, was also being equipped with helicopters during this period of time. And this newness, and uniqueness it was picking up, it used to its great advantage in its literature. For example, it described itself as a young and progressive corps with a great future, as well as stressing the variety of flying voles that were available within it. 
this in particular is significant because while obviously being a single set, single seat fighter a fighter pilot meant that it was just you and therefore you were responsible uh, and therefore you had to be of a certain standard both academically and physically and also mentally when it came to helicopters in the Army Air Corps they stressed the different roles applicable so for example they were pilot observer and air gunner all of these requ had different requirements different qualifications were required to, to gain access to the training period with different standards applied more significantly as well they also said that there were ground placements open that people could join uh, and but they were the uh, literature stresses the fact that while these people may join initially as ground crew they will have the opportunity should they show enough aptitude and capability to to sort of progress to fly in duties then itself marking down this clear line of progression shows that if you join you know if you leave school without the necessary qualifications for example to go on straight to pilot training what you can do is you can join the service uh, as a mechanic as an air gunner as an observer and you can progress from there in time and you can do that within a paid structure and you can still achieve a quite exciting goal of flight that is incredibly significant and is used to bring on basically and fill the gaps and numbers of a sh otherwise shortage uh, and it's very important because it both not only does it give people something to aim for and a skill with which they can reach it also stresses the fact that it also retains people in the service after the, after the national service obviously the, the turnover and number of recruits needed to sustain operations at a high level meant that the army the army the navy and the air force could not afford to lose huge numbers of people per year that they invested time and money in training they needed to retain them the army air corps strike on that particularly well with this progression they say that you know this is how we can move forward this is how you can move forward and grow within the corps which again is is very significant way in in showing commitment family links now obviously being another important role in encouraging people who to join up uh, obviously when it comes to the, the concept of, of military dynasties and family links the army's regimental service in particular is cited as an example with they often being a family regiment which saw service from multiple generations however it was the Royal Navy in the period pre-1982 where such a trend was really significant those sailors with families, in particular younger brothers, could extol the benefits of a Navy life such as travel without any negative offsetting factors such as the Army had with Northern Ireland. Proximity to naval personnel also shaped people's choice of career and was something the Navy encouraged. Sam McFarlane, for example, one sailor who served on HMS Coventry in the Falklands War, had a brother in the Navy and joined two years after him in 1966. Joining the Navy had not always been his ambition, but when he started receiving letters from his brother saying how great naval life was, and the fact they were coming from the Far East, that settled, him for, it settled it for him. In his own words, and I quote, I thought, I'm going to have a bit of this as a career. And he left school early to do so. In a history-conscious organisation such as the Royal Navy, the deeds and the achievements of predecessors were always valued. Thus, men with fathers who had served in the Navy often aspired to the same career for themselves. For David Hard Dyke, captain of HMS Coventry in 1982, the tradition established by his father in the Navy had extended the family in the other services meant that as naval officer's son, during my formative years I thought only of the Navy as a career. Similarly, both John Wingate's father and grandfather had served in the Navy, and while it was not preordained that he would follow them into the service, he says, and I quote, I know that my dad was absolutely pleased as punch, and I end quote, when he joined the Navy aged 16. This pamphlet in particular is very interesting. Uh, as you can see, it shows it quite clearly states its purpose of recruiting begins at home. Uh, if you read down, actually, the paragraph, you can see today, as you leave the Royal Navy, many young men are just beginning their naval careers. 
because again, as I said, after national service, there was, a man, there was the risk of a manpower shortage if the numbers could not be kept up. The Navy realized that they needed to replace those men who were leaving. Uh, and the concept of this, of being able to play on these familial ties, meant that you, you basically utilized leaving soldiers as informal recruiters. Who better to talk, in, to encourage more people to join than uh, just a, a family member or a friend or a family friend, someone like that, which meant that they could basically, you know, in, in, in pub and other social settings that's not quite as formal as a recruitment office, they could begin to extol, you know, and talk about the virtues of naval life, the benefits, the pluses that came with it, the exciting places, the duties, the skills, all of that. Uh, and that was ultimately a major draw for other people. And many people cited the, the, in the Navy, in particular in my research, the presence of others, the presence of other servicemen as being one of the reasons why they chose the Navy as a career. Uh, and that actually extends to both surface fleet, submarine fleet, uh, and also the fleet air arm. The fleet air arm naval aviators, for example, often extolled how great it was to serve there. Uh, and that caused other people, when they chose, to, chose a career in flight in particular, to, rather than join the RAF, they decided to join the Navy, which is very significant. So my slides are slightly out of order, so I just need to go back quickly. The concept of prior service and uh, the possibility of active service is obviously going to crop up in the recruitment literature as well. Um, as we can see here, this is a pamphlet produced by the British military called Northern Ireland, What's It Like for Soldiers, uh, in response to the ongoing, ongoing operations during the Troubles in Northern Ireland from 1968. Um, it can be clear, you know, except for a 12-month period between 1967 and 1968, British soldiers have been killed in operations every year since the end of the Second World War. Thus, British servicemen have always had the thought and likelihood of combat in the forefront of their minds. It has always been the possibility that you're joining an organisation that does actually fight, that does actually carry out operations, and therefore there is an inherent risk. It's not all an easy ride, much as the, much as the pictures of, of you know, the foreign travel, the water skiing, much as that like to present, the fact is that this is a military service and that, that comes with military duties. This pamphlet, which was produced in 1975, uh, was part of the Army's former way of educating its prospective recruits about what it was likely that they would be doing once they passed basic training. Uh, and it has a massive impact, particularly, but significantly, only for some a one aspect of the services. Northern Ireland was a, a specifically a sort of a counterinsurgency operation that only really utilised the Army and the Royal Marines. Uh, the Navy service fleet, for example, were not really involved in any tangible way by which they might see direct combat. Uh, and so it was in the Army and the Royal Marines that the likelihood of service affected choice. Uh, this was ultimately the aim of these pamphlets was to say, look, you will be going, to, you will be putting yourself in harm's way. Um, and it aimed to explain how and why the soldier would operate in Northern Ireland. But crucially, rather than act as a scare tactic, it actually liked to talk about the benefits of such service. While Northern Ireland, yes, may be active service, yes, it may have the possibility of danger. Um, aspects like this are saying, you know, you're always doing something active all the while you're learning. You're soldiering and you're peacekeeping. I feel a lot better for having done it. So it's presenting, it's ultimately taking what might be a negative offset in encouraging recruitment and actually putting a positive spin on it and saying, well, you know what, rather than just train and train and train and never do anything with those skills, here's an opportunity for you to do something about it and actually act as a force for good as well, as you can see by the reference to peacekeeping. While not every recruit would have seen such a pamphlet, of course, 
that the Ministry of Defence was producing them demonstrates that they were trying to educate recruits as to the likelihood of active service. Those that did see it could have no doubt they would expect to be expected to serve in the province, uh, and this was something that was also drilled into them very much throughout their training, that everything they were doing was preparing them for active service in Northern Ireland. One pertinent question regarding the soldiers in Northern Ireland is also covered in this pamphlet, which is, are they allowed to refuse to serve there? To which the answer is, and I quote, no, soldiers know they have to go where they are needed. In contrast to this, uh, it is clear from, from my research that the prevalent attitude among those who joined the Navy's surface fleet in the 1960s, 70s and 80s was one whereby the possibility of seeing any action at all was, was seen as being extremely unlikely. Uh, Kevin Smith, one sailor I spoke to, said that when considering whether to join the Navy, the idea he would ever be involved in a war never even crossed his mind. Uh, whereas he knew that if, had he joined the Army and Royal Marines, which he was considering, then active service would be a definite. This is almost certainly the legacy and impact of the recruitment literature. It has shaped and changed the way in which the Navy is perceived and what the Navy's role is perceived as being. Such an attitude arose partly due to the political circumstances surrounding the Navy in the post-war period, and naval recruitment undoubtedly benefited from the extended period of peace the Navy was involved in. The historian Alistair Finland has argued that while servicemen, and I quote, have joined a profession in which the fundamental purpose is to apply violence, often lethal to achieve political ends, they rarely practice the skills they have learned. And this is particularly true of the Royal Navy in the period of 1960 to 1982. While John Wingate believes he joined the Navy, well, believes that when he joined the Navy he had a strong sense of patriotism, I quote, I had no sort of feelings when I was joined the Navy that it might be because I would have to go to war or get into any conflict. It didn't cross my mind. Again, you have dis it's the sheer differences in perception that cloud the way that people understand and perceive what the services entail. Uh, Nothing way can be seen, in particular in the Navy, if you look at the fact that ships as self-contained communities also had to recruit very sort of non-warlike roles. We looked at the artificers whose duty it was to service uh, attack helicopters, missiles, and in addition to other, other machinery. But the Navy also recruited roles like bakers, dentists, uh, and even uh, stewards who are effectively butlers to all intents and purposes. They serve in the war rooms. Um, these are extremely non-warlike functions. Uh, and the emphasis of training throughout, all throughout this period is that on that role. So if your role is not warlike, you do not consider your job as necessarily being one of war. It can be a, a massive shock when you ultimately have to go to war uh, and engage in fighting, even if you're not in, actually directly involved in a warlike role yourself. In contrast to this, however, and it's important to draw a contrast between the surface fleet and the submarine fleets, because of the Cold War, those men who were on board submarines operated on a war footing virtually continuously. They went on active front line, they went on active patrols throughout the North Atlantic and other areas uh, and engaged in sort of with an aggressive war mentality because this is required by their operational procedure. These were not training runs, this was the Cold War, it was very, it was very serious and this had been drilled in throughout training. However, the surface fleet simply lacked this experience at all. Uh, and more importantly, when it came to the Falklands War, they lacked any active, they as a whole sort of lacked any equivalent experience they could call upon. So, for example, David Hardyke, who I quoted earlier, acknowledged that the fact remained none of us had actually been tested in war, and nor, for that matter, had any of the commanding officers in the Royal Navy at the time. A very few of us had been involved in putting out colonial bushfires or other such low-intensity campaigns, but that was the sum total of our experience of war. Submariners, in contrast, had trained day in and day out for the time when the Cold War with the Soviet Union became a hot one. Also entrusted, the Polaris boat submarines uh, were entrusted with a nuclear deterrent. 
means that when you're carrying nuclear weapons, it just increases the level of seriousness. You know, you are carrying potentially world destructive elements. And it, when you are called upon to fire them, you know that it's because you're at war and you will have gone through all the necessary training procedures. That simply is not replicated in the surface fleet. In terms of the military aviators, despite training operating predominantly in a peacetime environment, life in the Air Forces also ensured a wartime mentality purely because flying was full of hazards. And trusting one's life to a mechanical machine ensured pilots could never become lax. Death could be a regular, death could be and was a regular occurrence among even experienced pilots through human error or mechanical failure. Even though no British pilots have been shot down through any reaction since Suez in 1956, pilots were in fact quite used to the possibility of imminent death. As one pilot stated, flying jet aeroplanes in an environment where you're simulating combat is going to be hairy. Accidents could and did happen. In an effort to perfect fighter combat, aircraft were pushed to their very limits, as were the men operating them, and inevitably this led to accidents. As David Morgan, for example, wrote in his retrospective memoir, the fighting pilot, so the fighter exercises replicated combat in a way that no one, nothing else could. Uh, and as he said, what he learned throughout these training period was, and I quote, there's probably only one constant when you fly fighter aircraft. Pilots die. They did it the most unlikely of times, in the most benign of circumstances. It doesn't matter what aircraft you fly, whether you're young or old, experienced or a rookie, whether it's peacetime or war, it is the constant that everyone is aware of and no one dares contemplate. In many ways, therefore, you could argue that because of the experience of active service and training, it could be argued that aviators were better prepared psychologically to actually deal with casualties when they came, particularly more so than the sailors of the Royal Navy, who for the most part lacked any operational experience and simply visited exotic places, conducted their roles uh, as they'd been trained, and had nothing to really jerk them out of the perception they created for themselves, and certainly had much, no such experience in enduring any levels of death like those from the other pilots. Briefly then, having looked at how the Navy present, uh, how the military presented itself and the types of themes it picked up upon, I'll just look quickly at how war in the Falklands challenged these perceptions of the British Armed Forces. Because of expectations prior to enlisting and because of the operational cultures of the land forces, the action in the South Atlantic was enthusiastically welcomed and there was a real rush to ensure that men took part and were not left behind. This was particularly noticeable amongst the Army and the Royal Marines. The Falklands represented a conventional war, something for which they'd had trained. Not only had they been led to believe that Northern Ireland might be the only chance they actually get to use to implement their training, uh, but they'd also been taught throughout their training period that you know, they were servicemen, this is what they were supposed to do, these were important skills to learn. The Falklands represented an opportunity to test that and to really push that to the limit. And as I said, it was a professional test uh, which they wanted to excel because this is what they've been taught to do. The years of training suddenly had a purpose uh, and it was the product of the mental conformity of serving these units and buying into their culture that produced this behavioural response in the soldiers. It should be noted as well that the desire to participate amongst the ordinary soldier was not for any lofty political or moral reason. Again, we looked at why people joined the armed forces in contrast to the First and Second World Wars. These men had become professionals not because of queen and country or anything like that. They'd done for a variety of reasons. Therefore, ideology is, is very low on the risk of motivating factors when it came to the Falklands War. For one para-soldier, and I quote, the idea of going to the Falklands is not that we wanted to save one of our islands in the South Atlantic, it was just the business that some country was going to try and knock Great Britain off the pile, so it was going down there to sort the Argentinians out, not so much to go and save the Falkland Islanders. Chance to implement skills, 
utilising an aggressive culture that had been bred through ex intensive training throughout any action, produce this behavioural response. It's interesting as well that that, that attitude is not prevalent, uh, is not present just in the elites, the powers in the Royal Marines, uh, it existed in the rest of the army as well. Um, Robert Lawrence, who served with the Scots Guards, wrote that his only real major worry about the war was the fact that he might miss it. Because uh, by the time he arrived south, he was worried the Royal Marines would already have won it, and they'd simply get there as garrison duty. Um, in his book, After Tumbledown, he writes, for, uh, and I quote, Our feelings on the journey down to the Falklands were mixed. We swung at times from being desperately scared of the realities of going to war to being as dangerously worried that we'd get down there merely to be told we were just garrisoning the islands, and the Marines had more or less done all the work. I'm a train killer, you know, every bit as good as these Marines and Paras. I'm sick to death of hearing about Marines and bloody Paras. Similarly, the fighter pilots that were being sent south were also desperate to take the opportunity to implement their training. As one put it, and I quote again, for some, going to war was a shock. For others, it was a dream come true. The latter was the case as far as I was concerned. In my heart of hearts, I wanted a fight. Peacetime flying had been fun. More than that, it had been terrific, but it wasn't the real McCoy and the only real thing that was going to show us all, all if our training and tactics were good enough. Again, here you can see that an environment that breeds professionalism, intensive, intensive professionalism uh, that comes from being a volunteer armed forces, there comes a professional satisfaction to be gained from implementing the skills uh, which so long have been, so much time and money has been invested. Uh, and this created a dichotomy of personal feelings when contrasted with the personal, f the personal fears that were never too present. Uh, and that's especially noticeable when you consider the British pilots going down knew they'd be outnumbered something like nine to one by the Argentinian Air Force. And yet they're still showing this active, outward, aggressive culture in order to engage. Of course, the land and air forces would be engaged in much the same sort of battles for which they had trained, although they would obviously be against very different enemies. The Royal Navy would be called upon to do something extremely different to anything it had done before. We've talked about the way the Navy had, had recast itself as a technological force. Yet in the Falklands, the war and the action was actually to see um, sort of air-to-surface combat between fighters and ships that was more akin to Crete and Okinawa from the Second World War than anything in the 1980s. With, ship, with aircraft closing and attacking at close quarters, meaning that these ships were suddenly called upon to utilise defensive tactics and weapons that they hadn't been used in a generation almost. In fact, for example, many of the ships were hurriedly forced to mount either general-purpose machine guns or break Bofors and Olicon guns, which are World War II weapons, out of storage and mount them on the ships, because they simply had no other closing weapons. As the Navy had recast itself with things like, as we saw, the missile system, that only works when you can shoot at a long distance and you've got time to lock on. Uh, with a fighter jet coming in 60 feet off the sea, uh, dropping iron bombs on you, there's simply no time to do that and you need to fall back on, you need to almost have a regression in technology, which was a huge challenge for the Royal Navy. Chris Howe, who's an electronic warfare officer on, on board Coventry, summed up this problem, and I quote, anti-ship missile defence is what I was trained to do against the Soviets. So whilst the procedures are sound, the weapons we were now expe expecting weren't the things we'd trained against. We were back against iron bombs. There's no radar on those. There's no electronic warfare detection of those. His entire role, his entire purpose, is effectively removed. Uh, and yet he's in this war zone and able to do anything about it. Uh, and that challenge comes directly from the, the image the Navy created of itself uh, that had been carried forward by the sailors in the service. Uh, and that's in contrast to what it was called upon to do. 
If I just wrap up quickly, uh, unfortunately, while I've not had time to necessarily show you all of the images uh, and, and discuss it the, the length I'd like to, the ways in which the, the Ministry of Defence and the Ministry of Information on behalf of them presented service in the, in the armed forces in this period, I hope I've at least shown you some of the major themes they used to recruit and make up the shortfall. When it was decided to end national service and re return to a volunteer army, there was a f uh, fear of manpower shortage. Uh, and the three services engaged in quite active competition with each other to make sure they had attracted the best recruits. No one simply wanted to take you know, the, the people that no one else wanted. They wanted people who were motivated and who wanted to achieve because they would ultimately be better at their job. The Navy is a very, you know, obviously, it's a, the military is a very professional force, and this is what they desired to do. It is interesting, however, that the ways in which the armed forces presented themselves, in particular, and the, the different sort of idiosyncrasies between the service had a direct impact upon the cultures of those units. Uh, and those are quite clearly shown when, if you, when looking at the reactions to news of actual fighting and war itself. For the Army and Royal Marines, it was a dream come true. It was an opportunity to test themselves. For the aviators, it was very much the same. It was a question of, these are our skills. You know, this is the opportunity to do it. The, 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 even the possibility of being able to shoot down an enemy aircraft and the, the social status and kudos that would come with that was highly prized. On the flip side of that, you have the Royal Navy. Fighting was simply not something they were trained to do. Uh, it was not something they expected to do. And the enemy they had trained for anyway was the Soviet Union, who used completely different tactics, completely different weapons. Uh, and so in many ways, while the skills of the, naval, of the aviators, both uh, the Fleet Air Arm and the RAF that served in the Falklands, and the Army and Royal Marines were transferable, the Royal Navy was left up fighting the wrong enemy in the wrong place. Thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 4th of June 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved.